0: today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. The problem is, if you go into the fight and flight mode and sort of live there, which is where most of us are, unfortunately, you can only keep up the cortisol and DHEA production for so long. And after a while, your body goes, "Mm -mm, we're not supposed to have to do this every day. We are running out of steam. Your body decides it's more important to get away from the tiger than to stay calm about it. So they keep the cortisol up and they make less and less and less DHEA. So as you get farther into adrenal dysfunction, cortisol stays up, DHEA starting to drop, and then if it's it really bad, even the cortisol drops. That is less common, thank goodness. So that's where the whole problem comes in as we stay in the fight-and-flight reaction. We have less and less and less DHEA, and DHEA is a really super important hormone.
1: Well, hello there, I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Kreske, and we've got an awesome episode for you on menopause and osteoporosis that you are not gonna wanna miss. Our guest today is Dr. Wendy Warner. Dr. Warner is a past president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine, served on the board of directors for the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, is an educator for the Institute for Functional Medicine and lectures nationally. Dr. Warner spent the first 14 years of her career in conventional medicine before pivoting to start focusing on integrative medicine. She now runs an integrative practice that focuses on getting to the root cause of chronic issues and helping to heal them naturally. Dr. Warner joined us today to talk about menopause, adrenal health and bone health and the surprising science that links them all. If you, like most people, have been living under the impression that it's just estrogen that causes menopause symptoms, you will love today's episode that actually digs into the science behind why adrenal hormones matter just as much as estrogen and progesterone as you go through that transition. Dr. Wendy's also gonna talk about why you need more than just calcium for bone health and how to get the ingredients you need to help build and maintain healthy bones throughout your lifespan. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine Podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Wendy Warner, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I really think you have such an interesting approach because you talk about menopause not as just a shift in your estrogen or your progesterone, but you look at the whole body. And I wonder, can you tell us? What's happening in menopause, and what's the approach you use to help women who go through it? Well, what sort of tickles me
0: is that I was trained that, like, most of the symptoms of menopause are all about dropping estrogen levels, right? Hot flashes and night sweats are from dropping estrogen levels. Well, if you think about it, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, because every single woman on the face of the planet drops her estrogen at menopause, and not everybody has hot flashes. I mean, okay, in America, most of us do, because... That's a whole other issue. But there are places in the world, and we'll talk about why, but in other places around the world, they actually have found little pockets of areas around the world where they didn't even have a word for menopause because it was no big deal. You just had a few weird periods and you were done. So what actually causes the symptoms of menopause is this very complicated neurotransmitter system that connects to what is called the thermoregulatory center of the brain. In other words, the part of our brain that tells us what our temperature is gonna be. And the easiest way to think about it is that this transmitter system has brakes and accelerators. And the brakes and the accelerators, if they're really well-balanced, which is where they are most of the time in our reproductive years, keeps your brain really happy. You're not gonna have a hot flash. The temperature is good. Okay, menopause comes along, our ovaries retire. This is their job. I mean, they've done their job. They're going to retire, let other body parts take over the hormone production. And then that takes away the major break to this system. The major break to the system is estrogen. So suddenly your neurotransmitters are going, hang on, hang on, hang on. We suddenly are getting all of this input and there's nothing to regulate it anymore. So that's what triggers the hot flashes. So if I can just explain to women, listen, here are the things that are accelerators. We want to keep them really quiet. As you get closer and closer to losing your estrogen, well, dropping your estrogen, you never lose it. It just changes. Then that whole transition becomes not as big a deal. Now, the other thing I do want to talk about is that it is super important to pay attention to women's symptoms around menopause. It alarms me that there is an entire generation of gynecologists who were being trained in the early 2000s when the Women's Health Initiative study came out. And that study was, many people think, inappropriately interpreted to say all hormones are bad and so shouldn't give women hormones when they get hit menopause. Well, that is problematic. Because what we know is that the women who have the worst hot flashes also are at the higher risk for coronary artery disease and strokes and heart attacks. So you really have to pay attention to these women. It is not okay to just say, oh, it's a natural part of life. Just buck it up. I mean, that's crazy. You need to pay attention to
1: these people. So why is that? Why are women who have hot flashes more likely to have cardiovascular issues? It is generally related to
0: the underlying things that cause the hot flashes in the first place, since it isn't really estrogen. This is the accelerator pedals I was talking about. If you have unstable blood sugar, and it could be anything from being hypoglycemic, meaning you're crashing your sugars a lot, that sets up a lot of inflammation. That inflammation actually, that's what feels like a hot flash. And it can also increase the inflammation in your blood vessels, which increases your chance of having dyslipidemia, which leads to heart disease. It could be something just as simple as hypoglycemia, or that then becomes insulin resistance if it's gone on long enough, because after a while, if your sugar's bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing around, your body goes, oh, wow, we really have to get this under control. And so you start making more and more and more insulin, which of course makes your cells nervous because they know if all that insulin works, they're going to get killed because there's going to be too much sugar. So they take away the insulin receptors. So now you've gone from hypoglycemia to insulin resistant. And then that, of course, most people know that can progress to diabetes. And people with blood sugar dysregulation are well-known to have an increased incidence of coronary artery disease and an increased risk of strokes and heart attacks. All right, so that's where the blood sugar piece comes in. Now, stress hormones being really out of balance is the other huge accelerator for hot flashes. And they are also a huge accelerator for vascular disease because cortisol is really inflammatory. Anything inflammatory going through your bloodstream is going to cause damage. And a lot of people don't talk about DHEA. That's another adrenal hormone. Its main job as part of the fight-and-flight reaction is to keep you calm and focused in the emergency so you don't do anything stupid. But from a vascular and heart issue point of view, it's a great anti-inflammatory. And a lot of people don't think about that. So if you've been stuck in a fight-and-flight mode for a really long time, which, I don't know, most Americans have been, much more so in the past few years, because we all sort of lost our adrenal resiliency a few years ago during the pandemic. And your body is busy keeping the cortisol up, and so it runs out of steam, and it starts making less and less DHEA. So you're not cleaning up your inflammation as well.
1: Hold up, let's paint a picture for the person who's thinking timeout. Why would cortisol impact DHEA?
0: So your adrenal
1: glands are making
0: both cortisol and DHEA. Now, what we're supposed to do, if all is well, You kind of have your basic, normal levels. You have a little problem or a little emergency. Your brain goes, wow, we're in trouble. The adrenal glands go, here you go. Cortisol goes up, DHEA goes up. Cortisol gets you out of trouble, DHEA keeps you calm. As soon as you're safe, they come back down. And then you wait. Your adrenals have time to get over it before the next time you have to do it. All right, that kind of stress is fine. That's how the cortisol and DHEA go together. Now, the problem is, if you go into the fight and flight mode and sort of live there, which is where most of us are, unfortunately. You can only keep up the cortisol and DHEA production for so long. And after a while, your body goes, "Mm -mm, we're not supposed to have to do this every day. We are running out of steam. Your body decides it's more important to get away from the tiger than to stay calm about it. So they keep the cortisol up, and they make less and less and less DHEA. So as you get farther into adrenal dysfunction, cortisol stays up, DHEA is starting to drop. And then if it gets really bad, even the cortisol drops. That is less common, thank goodness. So that's where the whole problem comes in as we stay in the fight-and-flight reaction. We have less and less and less DHEA. And DHEA is a really super important hormone. I mean, when I was in training, well, it was a long time ago, but still, they talked about it like it was a, quote, pro-hormone, as if it didn't really do anything on its own. It was sort of just hormone that you make, and then it becomes testosterone and estrogen, and it's sort of like a way station. Well, that's kind of silly because the body never makes anything unless it has a reason to, right? So DHEA is actually super important. And most of us, well, this is what I say to most of my perimenopausal and newly menopausal women. Think about what most women have been doing by the time they get to this point in their lives. They've been maybe raising a family, probably working, maybe doing both of those things. They may be trying to be the perfect daughter, the perfect wife, the perfect friend. So the point is, women, by the time they get to their late 40s, early 50s, we've been pushing ourselves for decades. And the chances of having normal, stable adrenal function is pretty slim. And so you're heading into menopause at a time when your adrenals are really whacked out and you're about to lose your estrogen, And so we keep pushing this accelerator pedal. I have a really interesting story from way back when I was a resident. And this was the first time I realized, what they are teaching me probably doesn't make sense. I trained at Temple University in North Philly, and I was in clinic one day. This, I think she was about 35-year-old woman comes in, and her complaint was she was having night sweats, but only the week before her period. She was smart enough to have figured out, she had them for about a week, and then they would go away for a couple of weeks, and they would come back, and she realized it was right before her period showed up. And I'm thinking, okay, night sweats or menopause? She's 35, she hasn't missed a period. So I go out and I talk to my attending and told him the story. I said, I don't really get it. What's going on? What am I supposed to do with her? And he goes into this bit long spiel about, well, you know, the week before your period, your estrogen drops, and so that'll trigger a night sweat. And I let him talk. And I said, sir, she's 35 years old. She has enough estrogen to have a period every month. I don't know any other 35-year-olds that are doing this. So really? And I don't remember what he told me to do, probably put her on the pill. But what I didn't really pay attention to at the time, but now I remember, she had also said to me that, let's say, in the prior couple months, her youngest kid was being bullied. Her baby's father had been put in jail for something he didn't do. That made it hard for her to pay the rent, so her landlord was giving her a hard time and threatening to throw her and her children out onto the street. I mean, she was stressed up to here. At the time, I didn't get it. All I saw was, well, okay, it's got to be more than estrogen, but I didn't put the two together.
1: I heard you on another podcast, you gave a really good explanation of what your ovaries are doing before menopause and then what your adrenals have to do after menopause and why they're linked. Because we're talking about losing estrogen, then we're talking about DHEA. But I think what I heard you basically say, and I want you to elaborate, is that essentially DHEA becomes, your adrenals become one of your major sources of estrogen after your ovaries retire. Yes. Yeah. so during our reproductive years, estrogen comes from the ovaries.
0: We get a lot of it. It is the stronger estrogen, estradiol, because our ovaries' job during those decades is to make us able to get pregnant. So it gets the big guns. All right, when it's done, and it's no longer time for us to worry about reproducing anymore, the ovaries go, thank you very much, we're retiring. And for the rest of your life, which these days could be a third or more of your existence, the hormones you live on all come from the adrenals primarily. I mean, other body parts can make small amounts, but basically you take... DHEA, which is an androgen hormone. It's related to testosterone. And there are a couple of androgen hormones that are sort of interconnected. And so your body has to take the DHEA, convert it to testosterone, and then the testosterone gets converted to this really weak little estrogen called estrone. That can happen primarily in fat cells, but it can happen all over. I mean, it can happen in your brain and your bones and muscles and all kinds of places, but primarily in fat cells. And that's why. I really want to talk to people about, please, please, please don't screw up your DHEA because nobody understands how important it is and how we need to maintain that level as we hit the transition into menopause. Because otherwise, it gets like way more dramatic than it needs to be because if we could just maintain that, you can make a lot more of this weak estrogen and your symptoms go down
1: how do we take care of our adrenals? Like if someone's thinking, shoot, that sounds like me. I'm totally burnt out. I'm stressed out all the time. First of all, how would I know if this is a problem for me? So let's talk about testing. What's a good DHEA level? What about DHEA sulfate? Like how would somebody know? And then what would they do if it comes back that it is low to help
0: boost that level? I hate to say this, but you can probably pretty much assume that you don't have normal adrenal function because... If you live in America and you're like most people, we've been pushing the envelope for way too long. So you can kind of assume that you're probably not where you need to be. Symptoms. Now, cortisol and DHEA symptoms kind of go together because if one's out of whack, the other one's out of whack. For the average person, if your cortisol is unstable and not doing its normal pattern of fluctuation during the day, your energy is going to be all off and your sleep is going to be a problem because cortisol is supposed to stay low all night long so you can stay asleep. So if you're waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning, assume that you have abnormal cortisol because it's coming up too early and waking you up. And for a lot of people, you know that mid-afternoon dip between like 2 and 4 in the afternoon where people are yawning and looking for a cup of coffee and maybe something sweet? That is either adrenal dysfunction because cortisol peaks at like 9 in the morning and then drops down till about 12 and then it kind of flattens out. But for a lot of us, If our adrenals aren't really doing their job right, you'll still be dropping between two and four. And so you'll actually be below where you should be. And those are the people that go, if I just push myself, I am fine by five or six in the afternoon. It's like I get a second wind. You caught back up to where you should be on the normal curve. So that's the symptoms that you would look for if your cortisol was really out of whack. Now, most people, if their DHEA is too high, which would be early in the fight-and-flight reaction. Women will tend to get acne. You might develop some facial hair, and you might lose some hair off the top of your head. That's high DHEA. That's less common. Low DHEA is much more common. And that's when people start feeling tired because you got to remember, DHEA is going to convert to testosterone, and if you lose some testosterone, you're going to lose your muscle mass. So these are the people who find that they are physically more tired There are the women that say to me, I used to be able to carry in four bags of groceries at the same time, and now I only do two at a time. What's the deal? And I'm exercising the same as usual. Why am I getting fat and flabby? That's another low DHEA thing. And emotionally, I'm not going to say people get depressed, but they get flat if your DHEA is low, or sort of grouchy. Because DHEA goes up to keep you calm in an emergency. So as you lose your DHEA, you become emotionally blah. So that's sort of the clinical things to look for. Now, in terms of testing, you have a couple of options. If you want to do a salivary cortisol level, that's really common from some, well, technically the national labs even do it now, although theirs are less accurate, but many specialty labs, you can do the five times a day, you spit in a tube and you get your cortisol pattern that can be really helpful. Don't do saliva for DHEA. It's not as accurate. I always tell people the problem with salivary DHEA levels or DHEA sulfate levels is that DHEA will be put into the saliva depending on how fast you're salivating. So like what if you just made cinnamon buns for breakfast and you're smelling that and you do your salivary test? Yes, not a good idea. So you can just draw blood levels. Now, Many people will draw a DHEA sulfate. It's related to DHEA. It's technically, it's the sulfated version of DHEA, and that doesn't change levels so much during the day. So you can get that blood level drawn any time a day you want. doesn't have to be timed or fasting or anything. I'm probably unusual in that I don't like actually drawing that test. Because it is so stable during the day, you don't actually see some of the variations that you would see in a DHEA serum level. DHEA in the serum is perfectly accurate as long as you do it before nine o'clock in the morning and you're fasting. And that's what time you would do a morning cortisol in the serum also. So you can get them both done. And as long as you're fasting and before nine o'clock, you're fine. And it's funny because the labs around where I am, they know that I order these tests. And if it is 9.15, they won't draw it. They'll send the patient home and go, nope, we know Dr. Warner's going to be upset. So we're not going to draw it.
1: In terms of what you do to care for your adrenals, what have you found to be effective for boosting low DHEA? If someone's like, you know what, I've been stressed out for a long time. Now my DHEA is low. Shoot, I'm going into menopause. I want to boost this back up. What can I do?
0: In the short term, there's a whole category of herbs called adaptogens. And adaptogen herbs basically help you modify your stress response. They support the adrenals. They take the edge off. Notice I am very carefully not saying they fix your adrenals, because they don't. They support them. If you're taking herbs and you're still living your life like a tiger's chasing you, tiger's going to win, okay? (laughs) But adaptogen herbs can be really awesome. And I really at this point don't know anyone who lives in America who could not benefit from taking an adaptogen herb. I mean, I do. So that's sort of the first thing. I am going to make a comment about supplementing with DHEA because if you walk into any health food store, you're going to find DHEA over-the-counter. And so it seems logical if your DHEA is low, let me just take some DHEA orally. Okay, here's the fallacy there. Oral DHEA is problematic because like all steroid hormones, when you take it orally, most of it doesn't even make it out of your stomach. It gets broken down by the stomach acid. Whatever does survive gets taken by your body to the liver first because that's what it does with steroid hormones. And your body, if it feels like it, the liver can turn that DHEA into estrogen or testosterone before it ever gets to your bloodstream. So you don't really know what you're getting. That's problem number one. Problem number two is if you take DHEA, you haven't actually fixed why it's low. Do I supplement DHEA occasionally? Yes, because if the lower range of normal is 31 and I've got a patient whose DHEA is 20, they probably need a little more than just herbs. So I will sometimes use a sublingual DHEA because those are available. It goes directly into the bloodstream, so it's a little more efficient. But I do point out to them, you do know that we still have to fix why it's low. And that basically is all about changing your response to your stress. Now, I like to use that kind of language rather than stress management, which is kind of a silly term, like you can't manage your stress. Stress happens. What you can manage is your response to the stress. So what we know about what our adrenals want to see to believe that we're safe, they want to see two things. Your adrenals want to see a quiet brain on a regular basis because we all have brain chatter and brain chatter to our body looks like anxiety you know how when you get really good at multitasking, you get that little voice in your head that goes, don't forget this, don't forget this, don't forget this. Well, that doesn't bother us. We've had that voice for ages. We're used to it. But it's like your adrenals are watching you going, okay, hang on a second. I don't actually see a tiger, but she's still worried about something. And she's still planning. There's got to be something going on because she's not being quiet and calm. So the brain chatter piece is where most of us end up sort of Giving our adrenals the wrong message. So that's problem number one. Any kind of meditative technique, I don't care what it is seated meditation, moving meditation, Qigong, Tai Chi, I don't care. Quiet brain. And you really have to work at that because so many of us, like, there's nothing in our culture that makes it okay to be quiet. So you have to sort of build it into your life. The second thing your adrenals want to see is positive emotion. Now, that's not to say I think everybody's walking around in a bad mood, although. A lot of people are. But this, what I'm talking about, is based on the research of the Institute of Heart Math, And what they found out is that our emotions actually start in the physical heart, which is much more romantic than what I was told in school, that it was all about brain chemistry. Message goes from heart to brain. Brain chemistry changes. We put a name to the emotion when the brain chemistry changes. And then that tells our adrenals, are we safe or not safe? What it comes down to, and it really is this black and white, every single negative emotion the brain interprets as a problem. And so if the brain thinks we're in trouble, it tells the adrenals to turn on. So anger and fear, that makes sense. You should tell your adrenals. But pain and anxiety and worry and sadness and loneliness and brain chatter all get interpreted as a problem. So that's going to push the adrenals. Now, obviously, it is normal for humans to have negative emotions. I don't want people to think, I expect everyone to walk around being Pollyanna. But many of us spend more time there than we should, especially the brain chatter thing that ends up looking like anxiety. So we got to get away from that. Now, here's the good news. Positive emotion does the opposite. If your brain sees that you're feeling grateful and happy and joyful, it kind of figures, well, there must not be a tiger back there because who'd be happy if we were still in trouble? So everything positive, tells the adrenals to shut up. And so you can basically, the HeartMath group basically took all of that data, came up with a bunch of techniques that allow you to, what you're doing is you're recreating positive emotion on a specific basis. And that basically is retraining your adrenals to go back to normal. And they've got 30 years of good research to show this works. And in my clinical practice, it is actually what I have found the fastest and most efficient way to specifically get the DHEA back up. I mean, I'm a meditator, so I don't want people to misunderstand this, but if you only meditate, you'll probably not get worse from your adrenal function, but your adrenal function will not necessarily go back to normal. Like your cortisol may, not, it may stabilize things, but the chances of getting your DHEA to come up if all you do is meditate, unless you have a, an emotion-based meditation, it's about the emotion, and that's where a lot of my patients kind of get hung up. I tell a lot of people about these practices, and I have a significant number of people who just hate this practice because we're so used to living in our heads that we don't know how to get our feelings going again.
1: So focusing on feeling good, whether it's grateful or feeling joy, is going to be more effective than trying to clear your mind and feel nothing if you have to choose what to focus on during a meditation.
0: Yes, that's preference. Now, if you're really agitated and you sit down to try to meditate or take care of yourself, you may not be able to go from agitated to grateful like that. So you might need to go to what we call neutral, which is just breathe. Don't feel anything, just breathe. If you do that, and if you breathe for literally, it takes five minutes. If you breathe and don't try to feel anything, good or bad, for five minutes, by then you will have triggered the physiologic response of relaxation. And so everything sort of settles. And once you get the relaxation response settled, then it's easier to switch to a positive emotion. So sometimes if you're really worked up and you can't get to happy, that's fine. Just breathe for five minutes and it'll be easier. And when it comes to how you eat, eat warm foods. Like salads are okay, but I have people who eat A smoothie for breakfast, a salad for lunch, and a salad for dinner. I mean, like, nothing cooked all day long. So it's like, please make soups and stews and eat more healthy fats because that's what nourishes the energetics of this part of our life. And it actually works. I know people look at me crazy when they go, wait, wait, you want me to eat like that? You want me to eat more fat? That's got to be crazy.
1: I want you to talk to us a little bit about herbs because you are so trained in this. And you mentioned adaptogens. And some people may be familiar with which herbs are adaptogens, but for the people at home who don't know, can you give us some examples? So my favorite adaptogen to
0: work with these days is maca. Now, I have to be very specific. There's one maca product, one maca company that I like because decades ago, I tried maca, different kinds of maca. It was very unreliable. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I couldn't find good research on it. It made me crazy. I gave up on it. Well, about a year or so ago, I got introduced to Symphony Naturals, maca products. That's the Feminescence line. They're awesome because what this company has done, and I am a consultant with them, so I do need to let people know that. They pay attention to the fact that there are different phenotypes. There's different colors of maca. And so if there's different colors, there's different chemistries, right? They have figured out, they've actually done the research to figure out what combination of these different phenotypes work better for women that are younger that are having trouble or women who are in transition versus menopausal women versus men. And what the MACA does, I mean, they've got solid research to show it has a conversation with your hypothalamus and pituitary, which changes the brain's conversation with your adrenals and your ovaries at the same time. They also have documentation that you can take their mycoproducts and improve your bone density. And the study doesn't show the mechanism, but if we know that you're going to change the conversation with your adrenals, then that means, in theory, your cortisol is going to settle down, your DHEA is going to come up. Well, we know that DHEA stimulates osteoblasts, so that would improve your bone density. That was not part of the study. That is a conjecture on my part, but that got studies to show that it helped your bones and osteoporosis is a concern for most perimenopausal and menopausal women. So it's got great research. I love using maca and it's the only adaptogen that I use by itself. If for some reason maca doesn't work for you because it is, you know, we talk about it as an herb. It's actually a vegetable. Looks just like a turnip. It does. It looks just like a turnip. It's in the same family as all those other cruciferous vegetables. So I have a small number of patients who really don't tolerate cruciferous vegetables well. And those folks, when they try maca, they might get a little bit of digestive upset. Occasionally, that just kind of resolves itself over the course of a week or two. But I've got a handful of patients, and it's very rare. But I have a few people, they say, well, okay, I tried it. I really can't stand it. So for those folks, there are other adaptogens that can work really well. And most other adaptogens we use as families, as groups. They work together with friends. Right now, you know how every now and then there'll be an herb of the moment all over social media? Well, the herb of the moment these days is ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is a great plant. It is awesome. And the reason I think it is doing so well, so to speak, is that ashwagandha works for everybody. because If your cortisol is high, it acts as a calming adaptogen. If your cortisol is low, it acts as a stimulating adaptogen because plants can do this. I mean, plants have zillions of different chemicals in them, so they can have multiple actions and your body just sort of figures out what chemicals it needs from the plants. It's something that we cannot do with pharmaceuticals. So ashwagandha is great. I always use it in combination with other adaptogens, depending on if your cortisol is high, you would want ashwagandha with maybe holy basil and rhodiola and schizandra. If your cortisol is low, ashwagandha might be really helpful along with panax ginseng and licorice root, both of which will bring your cortisol back up. So it kind of depends on the person, and that's where it gets a little bit tricky for the individual person who's not working with a practitioner because they may not know where their levels are, and they may end up choosing the wrong herbs
1: and then they think oh well, herbs don't work. So what type of practitioners are trained in how to use these herbs? Like how would somebody find an expert who can help them choose the right combination for them? Well,
0: a professional herbalist is obviously a good choice because a professional herbalist is actually trained to look at more than just your adrenals. I mean, they would be formulating something for you that covers every single issue you have. And I'm trained to do that. It takes a long time. So in my clinical practice, I don't actually do that very often because, unfortunately, as a doc, my time is kind of expensive. And these formulas are going to take me a couple of hours to figure out. So other options. Naturopaths are trained in herbal medicine. Now, some are more facile with herbs than others. TCM practitioners, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, will be very familiar with the traditional Chinese medicine herbal formulas. And again, some will be better than others because, especially with TCM practitioners, sometimes you focus on just the needles, and sometimes you focus on just the herbs, and sometimes you do both. Depends on the person. Functional medicine practitioners may or may not know herbs. It's not a huge part of the functional medicine training. I am trying to change that because I think it's really important that all functional medicine practitioners have a better understanding of herbs. But as I'm always told when I'm teaching for them, this is not an herbal medicine class. You don't need to explain too much, but they'll at least have some idea. Those would be your best choices for folks to look at. There are not very many conventional docs who've had herbal medicine training. So when you're looking for an herbalist, a certified herbalist, it's called a, well, either a certified herbalist, but if you really want to have the right person, it's a registered, it'll say RHG. And that refers to the American Herbalist Guild bestows a registration. And it's a really tough process. I have actually not done it yet because I think I'm too busy. It is a very rigorous process. If you can find an RHG, you're in really good hands.
1: Thank you. That helps. So I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned. You mentioned osteoblasts and bone. And can you just paint a picture for people at home? Why do we care about bone health, particularly after perimenopause. And what do osteoblasts do? Like, talk us through the science. Osteoporosis. Most people have heard of that. And
0: most menopausal women, if they are told they're osteoporotic, they panic. Because osteoporosis is a process in which the normal bone turnover isn't really working correctly. So in a normal bone, well, think about what bones do. They give a structure. But the other really big, important thing they do is that the outside part of the bone stores mineral for us, and the bone marrow makes blood cells for us. Bones are complicated, a lot more than people realize. Normal bone turnover, you've got a group of cells called osteoclasts, which break down the bone to release mineral into the bloodstream to go do chemical reactions. And then, of course, there's osteoblasts that build the bone back up because otherwise you would fall down because your bones would no longer be there. So there's this normal turnover that is supposed to happen. And in people with osteoporosis, basically the breakdown of the bone is going faster than the buildup of the bone. And so it's becoming less dense and therefore more prone to break. Years and years ago, I literally made it through all of my residency and all of my GYN training, never hearing about DEXA scans. They just weren't really being done. The person who told me about DEXA scans for the very first time was my Fosamax rep, because suddenly this drug is on the market that is going to treat osteoporosis, and so it's in the company's best interest to make sure that we're ordering the test so that people now have a diagnosis so that their drugs can be prescribed. At the time that they first described what, how Fosamax worked, it actually made sense, because What they told us was it's going to slow down the osteoclast so the osteoblast can catch up. Okay, well, that actually kind of made sense. So I have to admit, I wrote prescriptions for Fosmax for a while. And then, like many new drugs, a couple years go by and we start realizing there's a problem. So there were people that were developing jaw problems because the jaw bones were getting so thin. And then after even more time, we found out that if you're Using this drug for more than about five years, you have an increased chance of having what's called a pathologic fracture, which just means a bone just shatters into pieces, having done nothing. You could be bending over to make up your bed, and suddenly you're falling forward because your leg is broken. You haven't done anything. Those drugs are still on the market. There's a whole category of drugs that work the same way. We know that they make unhealthy bone, and I'm really not entirely sure why these drugs are still on the market. There are other drugs on the market that work a little more physiologically and do create a little bit healthier bones. But you don't have to use drugs. It's actually pretty easy to build bones back up. It's about keeping your blood sugar stable because when your blood sugar is unstable, it changes the pH of your blood. And so your body has to pull mineral out of the bone to buffer the pH back to normal. So, really good research for decades now, has shown that people that eat too much meat and too many sugars and starches, those things change the pH and it increases your chances of osteoporosis. So does this kind of sound familiar? Get your blood sugar back to normal? Everybody knows weight-bearing exercise helps prevent and treat osteoporosis because when you're doing exercises like walking or jumping, it literally causes little tiny micro-fractures in the bone And so your body has to heal it up so it increases bone buildup. Those little rebounder trampolines, awesome when you have osteoporosis. And I walk every morning really early. And in the middle of the winter, if I can't tell if it's ice or not, I won't necessarily want to be out before the sun comes up. So I have a little rebounder trampoline and I just walk and run on my rebounder. It's easy. Your GI tract is really important when it comes to your bone. And I know most people don't think about that, but you could be eating this perfectly clean, wonderful, healthy diet. But if your gut's a mess, you're not going to be absorbing your nutrients. And so then you won't have the minerals and the other nutrients that you need to build upon. So you kind of have to think about all of that when it comes to osteoporosis. So
1: if someone has osteoporosis and they start cleaning up their gut, right? They go see a functional medicine practitioner they make sure everything's okay. They do their rebounding. They keep their blood sugar stable. Is that all they'd have to do to see an increase in bone density or would there be other things you would think they'd need to add? I typically will go ahead, even if people are eating
0: pretty well, I will typically add in some kind of a bone building supplement. There's actually one that I really love that is just all herbal and it confuses my patients because they look at the ingredient list and they're looking to see how many milligrams of calcium are they getting. And the only thing you're going to see is just the whole list of herbs. And they go, wait a second, How do I know I'm getting what I need? I said, just trust me, it works. This product is called OsteoHerb. It's a product from Herbalist and Alchemist, which is David Winston, my boss. It's his company. But it works really well because we know that there are all these super mineral-rich herbs out there. And because most of us are not going to be willing to drink three or four cups of nettle and oat straw infusion every day, which is actually a good idea, but no one's going to do it. So you can just take these in pill form instead. And you not only are getting the minerals, but they also include some of the chemicals that you need to build up the protein collagen matrix, sort of the scaffold on the inside of the bone, because that's really important too. And a lot of people don't think about that.
1: What folks at home to understand, why do herbs have minerals? They have
0: minerals to keep their own chemical reactions running the same way that we need minerals to keep our chemical reactions running. And so every time you eat greens, you're going to be getting a ton of minerals. And I try very hard to get my patients to get minerals and vitamins from their food and teas, like herbal teas, rather than taking it in pill form because we know you're going to absorb it better from food than you will from supplement.
1: And the soil is a big source of minerals, guys at home who are listening. So when you eat plants... As the plants grow, they pull minerals out of the soil, incorporate them in their own tissues. And that's why when you eat plant foods, you get the minerals that were in the soil.
0: But that's also why it's important to make sure that you're getting your food, if you can, from local farmers who have really built up their soil because so much of the soil where our conventionally raised plants come from is completely mineral deficient because of monoculture and all that.
1: Talk to us about calcium, though, for a minute. So do you use any calcium? Are you anti-calcium? Like, what's the view on calcium for bone health?
0: Calcium is one of about 30 or 40 different minerals that you need. I mean, it's piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only thing. I mean, we were taught in the probably the early 2000s, oh, you know, take your calcium to keep your bones. And after a while, we realized if all you're taking is calcium, for some people, it's actually problematic because... If you're taking in all this extra calcium and you're not getting enough magnesium, the balance between your magnesium and your calcium gets off and you can actually trigger muscle cramps and palpitations and a lot of other things because you don't have adequate magnesium. So then they said, okay, we'll take magnesium with your calcium and then somewhere along the line they figured out you needed to add D. I just tell people, listen, if your bone builder only has calcium, magnesium, zinc, and D, you're only getting a fraction of what you need. And calcium, if you're going to try to get it from your diet, can you get it from dairy? Yeah. You're probably better off getting it from plants. Because if you look around the world where there is the most osteoporosis, it's Scandinavia and North America, which is where we have way more dairy intake than the places with very little osteoporosis where they eat mostly plants.
1: So you became an OBGYN, and I'm curious, like why women's health? And then why are you still doing it? You've got to have a heart for this.
0: Once upon a time, I was going to be a veterinarian because my dad was a veterinarian, and I loved working with the animals, and I decided I just couldn't deal with the clients because people are weird about their pets. They, and I am, too. I'm weird about my pets, too. I'm the first one to admit it. So I decided I would go to medical school, and I knew going to medical school that I wanted to do OBGYN because when I was a teenager, I was 15 or 16, I was having an issue, and my mom took me to her gynecologist, who was an older white-haired man, that I swear to you, he patted me on the head, said something condescending, and had the rest of the conversation with my mother. And I just was so incensed that I said, you know what? Nobody needs to have to put up with this. So I went into it knowing that I wanted to sort of change gynecology so that no young woman was made to feel that way. And my parents used to tease me because they'd say, what if you get to school and you find out you really don't like OB? I said, well, then I am out of luck because there's no other kind of doctor I want to be. <laughs> and I spent my first 14 years in practice doing conventional OBGYN. I attended births. I did surgeries. It was awesome. I had so much fun. But during that time, medicine really changed. I am old enough that I remember getting to deliver Breach babies vaginally. It was not an automatic C-section. I was allowed to do twins vaginally, no questions asked. I was allowed to just let women labor. This is what we're designed to do. Doesn't have to be go, 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 go and push things and everybody gets an epidural and everybody gets Pitocin. That was the beginning of my practice. And then by the time the world was changing and by the time I got out of conventional OB, I just wasn't having fun anymore because It was very cookie cutter. It was very interventional in the delivery room. I had 15 minutes for an annual GYN visit, which is horrendous. A colleague of mine and I sat down one night. It was three in the morning. We were in the delivery room waiting on babies to show up. And we were complaining about how the insurance companies really paid you so little that you couldn't afford to spend more than 15 minutes with somebody. But we wrote down all the things we were expected to do during an annual GYN visit, and we estimated the time. And even if you're doing the exam while you're talking to people, it would take a minimum of 50 to 60 minutes. And we had 15 to cover all of this in. And I just decided, you know what, this is crazy. And I was already kind of disheartened with some of the things that I was trained to do as gynecologists, because one would think that we, of all people, would know how to balance hormones? No. They don't teach us that. And they still don't. Literally, this is what I was told. If a young woman has irregular periods, put her on the pill. If for some reason she has a contraindication or the pills don't work, you start doing surgeries. You burn out the lining of her uterus if she's done with her children because then she won't have a period anymore. It doesn't actually fix the hormone imbalance. It just fixes the bleeding. I didn't have a lot of tools in my toolbox. You had sort of made reference to how I got doing this kind of medicine in the first place, what I currently do. It became very obvious that I had the world's worst PMS. When we were residents, I didn't really notice it because every resident's in a bad mood. So when I was in a bad mood, I didn't think about it. But I got out in practice and I was working with someone who knew me from residency. He had known me a couple years. It's embarrassing, but I lit into a staff member one time. Now, she did something pretty bad. But I was extremely unprofessional. And a couple of days later, when I got my period, I apologized. She quit anyway. Don't blame her. And my business partner pulled me aside and went, Wendy, can't have you doing this every month. And I went, yeah, you're right. That would be bad. Now, I was trained that for the three or four days out of the month that I was a pain in the neck, I was supposed to take Prozac every day. I went, nope, I know those side effects. Not That's not going to happen. I was already kind of interested in learning about plants. My parents were gardeners. I had grown up around plants and gardens and things. And so to this day, I do not remember how I found this because we didn't really have much of an internet. This was the early 90s. I found out about Vitex, Chaseberry, and I started taking it. And it kept me from yelling at people. And it was awesome. My business partner appreciated it. My husband appreciated it. Everything was good. But I kept my mouth shut. I did not tell patients about it for a really long time because it was the 90s. Doctors didn't do this. And I was a new kid in town and I didn't want to get labeled as some kind of weird witch doctor. But somewhere along the line, this young woman was literally crying in my office because her PMS was so bad that she was afraid that her husband was going to divorce her. So I literally wrote on a prescription pad, go to this health food store get this brand of Vitex, take it for three months, call me back. She calls me back. Three months later, she goes, my husband says thank you very much. And my girlfriend's husband says thank you very much because I told her about it also. Well, maybe now I'm not going to get right out of town. I tell that story a lot because that is what taught me that my colleagues may think I'm crazy, but my patients are going to appreciate it. And the next thing I said, well, okay, now I know how to fix PMS. What do I do for menopause? And I just sort of went from there. And figured it out.
1: What else is on your heart? What else do you wish, like when you think about the future of medicine or what something that excites you about medicine or something you think needs to change? <laughs> Tell us, Dr. Wendy. Things that need
0: to change. Oh, Kate, hey, that's a whole nother couple hours. Here's what I would like to see. I would like every healthcare practitioner of all stripes, medical doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, OTs, PTs, PAs, everybody if they had exposure to functional medicine, it would be awesome. They don't necessarily need to be full-blown functional medicine practitioners, but it teaches you how to think about health creation in a way that our conventional training just doesn't do. Because it talks about processes, not diagnoses. And it's about how do we fix an underlying imbalance in a process. And if it's More complicated because you have to think it's like systems biology. It's not little silos the way I was trained. And I would also love every family to have a basic understanding of bumps and bruises herbal medicine. There was a time when every mom or dad knew simple little herbal things to take care of the day-to-day stuff that happens when you've got a family. For upset stomachs and rashes and that kind of thing. And we have totally lost that, which is a shame because that puts us reliant on practitioners that are hard to get into and expensive, and it disempowers us as individuals. So if I could just see every family understand how to do bumps and bruises, herbal medicine, and then maybe every community get a couple of good community herbalists to help with bigger things that the families couldn't do themselves, that would be great. Because if we could learn to focus again on building health instead of treating diseases, we would have less that we have to focus on, quite frankly. It bothers me a great deal that I made it through four years of medical school and four years of residency, and it was all about fixing problems as opposed to building health. I would love to see that change.
1: For someone at home who's thinking, well, yeah, I want to know about herbal things I can do for my family. Is there a book or a website or some place they could start to learn about
0: this? If they just want to learn bumps and bruises, herbal medicine, there are a couple of good authors that have written books for the public. Names that come to mind are Aviva Ram. She was a midwife and herbalist first and then went back to medical school. Her practice focuses on kids and women, but I think she has at least one book for just general family stuff too. Rosemary Gladstar is like the grandmother of herbal medicine. She's awesome. She's written a couple of books. She's not a clinical herbalist in the way that like, she doesn't read research papers. She's more of a traditional herbalist and an amazing healer and an amazing educator. Now, if you want to really learn herbs, I mean, if you've been interested in, you've been dabbling around in it and you've watched some webinars and you've decided, I want to really learn herbs, whether you really want to practice is a different question. And again, I teach for this organization, but the best herbal training out there is David Winston's Center for Herbal Studies. They have a two-year training course that is tough. I mean, it's two years. It's five hours of class every week most weeks, I mean, you get a couple weeks off here and there. There are projects and homework and it's rigorous. I thought about it for 15 years before I finally did it. And because I kept saying, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And I finally just realized, you know what? There's going to come a time when David stops teaching because he's older than I am. I finally just jumped in and did it. And it was awesome. And it's all online. It always has been because he's got students all around the world. So it's actually real convenient, but it's tough, but it's the best. You get exposure to everything in his training, everything from conventional Western herbs, TCM, Ayurveda, Unani Tib, the eclectic physicians. He's part Cherokee, so there's a tiny little Cherokee medicine section. You learn botany. You learn everything. You learn medicine making. So it's a great resource if you really want to learn herbs.
1: Sounds like a really good investment in you and your family's health. To just learn this stuff in general and you're teaching are you teaching like certain classes on certain topics or yeah during his two-year course i teach the
0: women's health section which is about 20 hours 20 24 hours of class for me it's kind of fun because it's in the second year it's at the end of the second year so the students have already actually heard about the herbs at least once before I am teaching them how to think like a functional medicine practitioner so they recognize clinical symptom patterns because a lot of these people are not going to be able to order testing. It will be outside their scope of practice. And I say to them, don't worry about it. Just learn the clinical symptoms. You will understand what's going on physiologically so you'll know how to treat it. So it's kind of fun. And then I also teach this past spring, I taught for his grad class. He has grad classes also. I taught a grad class on uh, fertility, which was fun.
1: So guys at home, if you have been as captivated as I have been for the last hour, you can keep learning from Dr. Wendy and sign up for her courses. Dr. Wendy, tell us, where can we find you? Like if people want to follow you and continue to learn from you, if they want to see you in your practice. So I have made it really easy. As long as you can remember my name, you know how to find
0: me. My website is simply wendymornermd.com. My Instagram handle is Wendy Warner MD. Same thing on Facebook, same thing on LinkedIn. I mean I'd like I made it really simple for everybody.
1: We appreciate that. I love it. Okay, great. We'll have those links in the show notes, guys, so that you can go connect with Dr. Wendy Warner, stay in touch with her. Thank you for spending so much time with us today. Thanks. That's been great fun my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. And we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine podcast.